So, this episode was supposed to be Clancy and I talking about culture, and I promise we will do that. However, since May 25th, when George Floyd was killed, a firestorm of anger has swept much of the world and engulfed streets, conversations, and our collective psyche on a scale which hasn't been seen in a long time, and arguably never. So whilst this is not a current affairs podcast, and certainly not one which wishes to jump shamelessly onto a bandwagon, nor veer into politics, I do feel it is right that we talk about Black Lives matter. Why? Because what happens in the community outside of our places of work influences and shapes life inside of work. Just when we thought COVID-19 was a moment of calibration for leaders and culture, the Black Lives Matter voice has further spun organisational debate on its axis, and rightly so. CEOs around the world have scrambled to send out meaningful statements on the Black Lives Matter movement, whilst no doubt hoping that people won't delve too deeply into the BAME statistics at the top of their organisation. All the DNI people I know have been under enormous pressure to map an instantaneous road forward when they and others have been screaming for it for years. Personally, I have vacillated back and forth between angry, frustrated and helpless. These events did not come out of the blue. In many ways, they have been centuries in the making and in recent years have been stoked and fueled until the lid flew off. As a privileged white man, albeit with his own inclusion challenges, I do feel an enormous responsibility to participate in the debate in order to help myself and people who share my colour be a positive part of the way forward. I want to be involved. So, in this episode, I am joined in discussion by three people of black heritage from my network, whom I respect enormously, and who in forging successful careers have championed workplaces which understand wider inclusion and certainly what it means to be black, or perhaps what it means not to be white. What you are about to hear will hopefully give you additional perspective to challenge your thinking. I know that it had that effect on me. There is so much to discuss and to learn on this subject that this humble podcast could never hope to be anything more than one tiny moment in a much larger conversation we must keep alive and converse we will. Ama Afrifa Chi rightly describes herself as a valiant culture builder helping companies improve their culture, inclusion, well-being and overall employee experience. She has built her career and expertise within different industries such as tech, professional services, legal, financial, startups, media and entertainment. Hashi Mohammed is a barrister, broadcaster and recently published author of People Like Us, What It Takes to Make It in Modern Britain. It's a part memoir, but also a polemic about what we need to do as individuals and as a society about the stalling project that is social mobility. Boko Inyundo is of both Kenyan and British heritage. A senior strategic marketeer with a large global law firm, Boko is also a pro bono board member with two renowned membership associations, as well as a tech-focused consultancy. They are all focused on stimulating innovation and growth in the Africa-UK corridor and for the continent's diaspora. Boko is speaking today in a personal capacity. So, welcome everyone. I think it's uh, fair to say it's been a tumultuous few weeks, and I just wanted to ask a, a simple but basic question. How are you all feeling right now? When the George Floyd incident happened, it was um, a huge feeling of like, overwhelming exhaustion I think I would say amongst other feelings as well um feel quite hopeful um just by the conversations I've been privy to but also the um sort of consultation opportunities that have been coming 
my way in terms of people wanting to get it right, but also within my own organisation of us definitely taking action on how we get it right. And I want to talk about what uh, getting it right means, because I know a lot of people listening to this are fearful about getting it wrong uh, inadvertently, however well intended it intended they are so let's talk about getting it right Hashi how are you feeling right now Tom I I very much share uh, Arma's sort of um, feelings on this as well I'm I'm incredibly hopeful but I wasn't as shocked and as surprised as a lot of people were in relation to the sort of uh, the catalyst of all of this the George Floyd situation I've been following the kind of Black Lives Matter movement for for quite some time and I've seen it going up and down in America and vilified and undermined and and I suppose now sort of reaching that crescendo where you have a situation where you know somebody like Nancy Nancy Pelosi the sort of the Democrats leader in 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 the, in the American Congress is wearing a scarf and doing yeah. uh, the, the kneeling I mean it's yeah. just phenomenal she's taking a knee you know so I'm hopeful because I think that this moment definitely feels different. It definitely feels as though what's happening at the moment is slightly different to what we have been used to before. Now, the question then becomes, as you've already alluded to, to what extent will this actually lead to meaningful change? And to what extent will this just be another blink in in the ether? And that is far too early to say, but uh, I am both cautiously optimistic and hopeful that we're not out of the woods just yet. Listening to what you've just said, Hashi, I'm slightly concerned. And obviously I'm coming at it from a different perspective to you. I'm worried that we are getting deliberately misled to get excited about things like statues and faulty towers and, and, and gone with the wind and not actually having enough robust conversation around what is at the core of this? Why, why does it feel different this time? And um, why isn't it important that it feels different this time? That's my concern. But Boko, what do you think? How are you feeling? How am I feeling? Uh, I think uh, I remain exhausted, but I also, and uh, the irony of it all is excited as well. Um, I think if we, you know, I think my children who are 11 and 13 now, I think if we look forward to when they're in their mid forties, like I am, um, they'll be looking back at this moment as a watershed moment. And for that reason, it's exciting. I am excited by the fact that people who I wouldn't have anticipated engaging in this conversation are doing so now, uh, because this is a conversation that's been a lifetime for, for many of us. My surprise, honestly, as to how some people close to me have also questioned the value of the Black Lives Matter movement. And we all know the, the phrase has been bandied around, you know, why, why just black? Why not all lives matter? But, um, the, and there's others. You, know, you do hear the refrain, it's good that the conversation has started, but I still remain of the position that action speaks louder than words. And, and, and what you're hearing now from some really quite amazing people is people talking about the importance of action, uh, how key it is to avoiding rhetoric um, and how destructive rhetoric is. And that well, rhetoric has been in place for hundreds of years. I, I'm, I'm amazed that people say, would say that it's great to start the conversation because, you know, I... I'm absolutely clearly not a black person, but I have been involved in diversity and inclusion for a long time. And 
this is a conversation that has been going on for a long time. Do you, do you feel that it is a tipping point? Do you feel it is, this is different this time and that we can't go back from here? Or is it just another moment of calibration uh, as we edge forward to greater equality? I think we are definitely at a moment now that has the real potential to be harnessed. But just like you, I'm also quite nervous about the way in which the conversations have moved away from what I consider to be the bread and butter of this concern, these concerns to something like, um, you know, statues. Now, <clears throat> of course, we can't get away from the fact that these statues, particularly when you look at, you know, the Colston statue or the Cecil yeah. Rhodes statue and others, you can't get away from that, the fact that they may be historical, but they are directly linked to a past of Britain, that, that imperial past that has led yeah. to many of the problems that we're facing today. There is no doubt about that. But actually, what I want to be hearing about, and I would love to know what Arma thinks about this, what I want to be hearing about is, what do we do to harness this moment? to bring more attention to people's own prejudices? What do we do about this moment to bring forward the kind of unconscious bias and racism that we know that exists, mm. both in terms of the level of expectations that children have of black kids, yeah. to the recruitment practices that mean that we're disproportionately not hired at first instance, yeah. to the progression and the retention issues, and how do we harness this beyond a CEO of a company saying, I too think that black lives matter, kind of thing, you know, and, it, and that is what is frustrating for me. And then finally, it's sort of one of those ironies now that we're seeing the shift whereby a fundamentally righteous, in my view, correct and genuinely amazing movement that is the, the Black Lives Matter movement right now has all of a sudden become about, in a most ironic way, an Asian, a British Asian home secretary whose family came here when Idi Amin kicked them out of Africa, making claims that she will liberate Winston from the bollards that put up, put him up there and that he's being covered. And the irony of the, that being on the front cover of the Daily Mail, all of a sudden reducing what is a really important moment to the boarding up of a statue temporarily. And that, for me, is the danger of us losing sight of how we harness this moment in a fundamentally transformative way. I'm a little tired of hearing about let's have a conversation because, like you also said, Tom, we've been having this conversation for a very long time. Yeah. But something is different about this moment here and now. And so I understand why we also have to have the conversation. But I'm just like, this diversity thing, this, you know, our Black Lives Matter the whole thing about racism is not a new thing. It's not like it just happened yesterday and you just suddenly found out. You know, it's, so for me, the frustrating point is having to always have this thing around, let's have a conversation. It's not even about that anymore. For me, it's very much around, and I think with any movement that actually has the opportunity to really be a tipper point and to change something quite monumental in history and society, will always have the distracting factors of, let's talk about statues here, let's zoom into something else and make it something else. So we deter from what we actually really have to deal with. It's fundamentally about accountability. So rather than try and deal with it in silos and pockets, which is what I, I feel like is happening of, okay, well, let's look at 
corporates for now and will focus on those because all these companies are making statements, but what are they really going to do? And I think the critical thing here is that we need to address everything in an ecosystem because everything is connected, whether it is politics and government, whether it is about social, it's social injustice. So when you look at social injustice, you have to look at it in its entirety. So yes, it's about government and politics. Yes, it's about education. It's about healthcare. It's about corporations. It's every, everything and everyone has an accountability here to make that change. I find it really interesting when I'm seeing all these statements coming through and then I'm seeing all these and here is how we're going to tackle it with, with our priorities and for me unless I see that it's all going to be just lip service. Let's look at the systemic institutionalized systems that have actually and processes that have kept racism where it is and how do we dismantle that. Also who is actually accountable and responsible for that. Whoever is responsible for making these decisions that actually influence society whether it's in our workplaces and our personal spaces those are the crux of the matter that we need to handle and I think whilst it does start a, a conversation it needs to be short and sweet and we need to get on with what we need to do and I think that the black people experiencing this are very much instrumental to it but our job and our role is not to keep educating our non- um, our non-black counterparts as to how to, how to go about yep. it. What needs to happen in order to make sure this is a tipping point and we're not back here in five years' time? That's, that's the $6 million question. Um, I think we have to bring elephants into the room. Things like positive discrimination. Right. Is there a role for us actively looking at, for example, within corporations, actively looking at promoting people of color so we can change the discourse by through lived experience at the higher echelons of business it's about humanity and it's about equality and actually when you start the conversation from there everybody realizes that what's being asked for is just simply fair it's no one's trying to win a battle here people are just looking for you know humanity to shine through let me pick up on the positive discrimination point, Boko, because playing devil's advocate, you could, and I've seen it particularly around gender inside organizations. She only got the job because she's a woman. Don't worry about the interview. You'll be fine because you're a woman. They want women, women in senior roles. It, this, can, this can backfire as much as it can cr create balance and move the agenda forward. Do you not think? No, I don't. I think if you accept that the statistics are as bad as they are, much like in a South African context post-apartheid, one recognised that one intervention that needs to make, be made quickly was to enable black Africans in South Africa to rise to positions where they can allocate resource and use that, that, that power to allocate to make change happen. Yes, there will be uh, problems with it. But actually what you're trying to do is present an immediate intervention that goes some way to correcting something that is markedly unfair. If you're not going to introduce things that um, make the intervention in a shorter time frame, rather than waiting for it to pass over a generation or two, I'm not sure you're taking your responsibilities seriously as a leader of a corporation, a country, a family, whatever it is, because the, the, the stats are just, well, they're, they're embarrassing. 
I want to talk about them in a second, but I, I want to pose the same question to Ama and, and, and Hashi. I, I have a concern because I have seen it that uh, what, what Boko argues for very eloquently could cause more division and resentment because of how it is perceived inside the organization, which is that you are getting a job over me because of the color of your skin. And organizations have wrestled with this for decades. Uh, and the, the nuances and fine line between positive action and positive discrimination. What do either of you think about that? I will disagree with, uh, um, from, with, with what um, our good friend uh, Boko was saying, because I think if you get to a place whereby some people or the majority of a population thinks that there, there is some sort of preferential treatment for one group of people over another based on their race or, or, or whatever other protected characteristic, I think that will inevitably lead to a potentially toxic environment in that workplace and I've written about this in my book uh, in relation to how people will perceive that person mm -hmm. how that person may have something that is uh, over their head as somebody referred to as sort of the 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 arrow that says I'm a diversity hire and in a way that I think could potentially undermine uh, a great deal of somebody's potential now does that mean that, that, the, that the final analysis, I think that the system is fair and that everybody has got the fair, same chance? Not at all. If, for example, you are a, a young black boy, you are 16% less likely to get to the university of choice, particularly Russell Group Universities, when compared to uh, uh, your, your white uh, British counterpart, even where you have the exact same grades. And so the idea that the sort of the playing field is, is fair and all the rest of it, I don't believe that. But then the question then becomes, how do you address that? And I just think when we get to look at solutions and we start looking at these solutions by way of suggesting that, that, that you know, some sort of preferential treatment or positive discrimination could be the way forward, I think that might be a short-term solution, but in the long term, in the hearts and in the minds of people, it will most certainly have a toxic kind of conclusion in, in the respect of the vast majority of people. And the people who are the beneficiaries of it will not ultimately feel comfortable about it either. Well, maybe well, I, I, you I, can, I, Alma, you can come yeah. in. Boko, I'll come back to you in a second. Alma, you, you're, a, you're a black woman. Uh, yeah. you, how, how do you... Where do you land on this? I, I see both points, but however, I think there's an element here where I do think there needs to be some some exploration of positive action because I think for me the key thing is how it's done and how it's integrated yeah. and how it's communicated. Because at the end of the day, we've had, like I said, we've been having continuous conversations around just different diversity strands, and we've got nowhere because it is an un unfair playing field. I think to Hashi's point around people's behaviors or attitudes or thoughts, that's the longer journey that we need to still tackle. Because irrespective of how great your organization is, you will still have people that will have reserved thoughts about whatever, about certain things. So now if you don't address those in open spaces and have those 
um, conversations or, or look at other ways in which your culture and the culture you're building within your organization is and actually truly how inclusive that is that is where you will be harboring and having these these um these thoughts and feelings brooding up where people feel slight slighted at the end of the day if you do have positive discrimination and you choose a for example myself a black woman who is very capable and shows her capability then you've got something right it's different if you keep choosing the wrong people and then because if you keep choosing, I guess what I'm trying to say is this, if you choose the wrong people for the role and you're doing it in positive discrimination factors or positive affirmation factors. It's illegal. It's illegal. But it's also the fact is you're reaffirming that all these negative thoughts, all these um, conscious bias thoughts that people have been having because you're a woman, you're getting it, or because you're black, you're getting it, or because you have a disability, you're getting it. Yeah. If you're hiring the wrong people in those roles, it reaffirms what people are trying to say is wrong about looking at how we approach things in a positive way. And I think organizations are inherently lazy. Uh, so they will look at everything in a modular sense. You know, give me the, the guidebook for the gays. Give me the guidebook for the Muslims. Give me the guidebook for returning mothers. And I see this from my own mental health perspective, which is, oh, crikey, it's, it's Tom the bloke with bipolar. Oh, yeah, I read about something on the internet about him uh, during Mental Health Week. I'd, I'd better speak differently to him than I do to Pam. I'd better be a bit more cautious. Well, Pam deserves as much respect as I do. Let, let's just all have a core basic level of respect and open understanding for other human beings and nuance and build it from there. Or am I being too simplistic, Boca? The past. I think the positive discrimination question, I think is already happening. So a broadcaster here in the UK saying that by 2023, 20% of their top 100 paid staff are going to be persons of colour, you know, BAME people, is somebody saying in a short time frame, in this case, two, three years, we're going to make the intervention that invites more people of colour into the high echelons of our business. Now, that in itself is neither here nor there. What I saw in the late 90s in South Africa, when positive discrimination at state level was introduced, is you saw young black men and women introduced into offices of known mm -hmm. brands, mm -hmm. sharing stories with their white counterparts. Yeah. And actually it's those stories, I think, that helped generate a sense of empathy between one another. And it's neither here nor there that one or two of those black executives weren't very good at their job or were chances. Yet what actually happened was, you know, people shared stories and realized the humanity within themselves as individuals and a greater understanding between them in a place where that had suffered from, you know, state level racial legislation in apartheid. And so it's fantastic. You know, people shared stories and got to know each other and got to understand each other. But I think the same will happen in places like the UK and the US as a result of something very specific, a target-driven, positive discrimination intent around changing the numbers. Not, not saying we want that broadcaster to have 100% BAME personnel at the top of its business. We want essentially a representative group at the top of the business that mimics the representation of these people and let, and let me try and make a bridge between uh, you and Hashi and, and, and where I think Arma is coming from this. And Arma, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but 
you've got a better chance of succeeding with positive action and reducing the chance of a situation that Hashi described where people are resented and people feel recruited or developed for the wrong reason. If you put in place the right communication, the right culture, the right organizational dialogue, which explains it. But, you know, in the last year, I have run focus groups inside organizations, a number of organizations with people of color and black people. And I have had, I was counting it up last night, about five different occasions where a black person has said, I am asked on a regular basis whether someone can touch my hair. I, I, in, in some ways, I fear that we are so far away from positive action when we have amazingly awful things like that going on. Have I shocked you with that? I probably haven't shocked you with that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, let me just come in on that. I mean, I, I don't think that's shocking, but I don't also think that that kind of experience is something that we should be either belittling, but also not necessarily think that it's representative of what's happening all the time. But what we are talking about here is a more egalitarian society in which everyone's potential is not stunted by virtue of to whom they are born, what race they are born, what class they are in, or what gender they are. And for that to be implemented in a systematic way, not just by a top-down situation by government, but rather by corporations, organizations, companies, in a way that is fair to everyone else as well, is a much, much harder proposition. And so we have to be realistic about what's possible. But equally, we do not necessarily want to accept that the status quo is the only way of doing something. I do think this is actually a really, it's a big, I mean, when we look at it from a society perspective, societal perspective, is, again, there are very much a lot of surmountable issues there. So I think it's not pitting every, each other against each other, but it's actually just acknowledging that there are groups in society that are going through pain and are being marginalized. But when you look at it in the layers and the lens of ethnicity, that gets even more deeper and deeper and deeper. So back to your point more about complex. the hair thing. As a black woman who has been in several different positions in the workplace, I have had to often sometimes fend off, not even people asking if they can touch my hair, but literally going directly to touch my hair. And you, they don't do that to the other counterparts. So I think in this perspective where and why when you were saying that Tom and I did the whole side thing was because <laughs> it's just never ending it's like you know and this my I guess what I'm trying to turn to is the point around identity because I have been in a workplace where I have been told um you know we need to keep to uniform because so no bright colors or or none you know don't wear any of your sort of tribal gear I've been you know I've been in offices where I've been told I can't sit with my own black counterparts because you know, it's it's seen as me being, you know, separate. And, and also right. because me being a person, me being hired into that role as an inclusive person, it doesn't look very inclusive. Yeah. These things still happen in the workplace and it's very much associated with identity and with identity is often linked to culture and race um, as, as some other things, obviously. But I, I kind of, reason why I'm kind of voicing this is going kind of back to Boku's point around the fact of the matter is, yes, sharing stories is part of that. But if you're sharing stories and nobody's listening, what is the point? Yeah. And, and Boca, I, I want to pick up on that because I feel that as a white person, I have felt 
frustrated and I felt that I want to do something and I don't know what to do some of the time. And I know a lot of my colleagues and friends and clients think like that. And I think one of the things that we can do is be curious and to ask questions and to have an interest and take a position of uh, understanding. And from an organizational perspective, you know, a lot of organizations say, oh, you know, we're a place where you can bring yourself to work, but that just isn't reality. And your example of clothes, which have so much significance and so much meaning, uh, fall outside of that. And still organizations for everybody try to create a level of cult and a level of this is who we are and this is what you need to do to fit in. Um, Boko, you mentioned apartheid before, and when I listened to Hashi talk about, you know, the the chances of a uh, of a young black boy being sixteen percent less getting into his university of choice with the same grades, and I see some of the cases, such as the hair and uh, other more uh, unpleasant things. Do you think there's a passive aggressive form of of apartheid going on right under our noses without us realizing it do you think that we fully understand what it means to not discriminate even inadvertently um i i'd, I'd say absolutely i mean a stat that i recently came across was research suggested that um out of 152 board positions in uk tech boardrooms i.e the largest uk tech businesses only four out of the 152 board positions um, were folk of a Bain background. Now, now, yes, I think in the last four weeks since George Floyd's death, um, you know, it's been an education for me to distinguish between racism and systemic racism from bias and from white privilege. And particularly with white privilege, understanding white privilege to be uh, where someone has greater access to power and resources than people of colour in the same situation do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it, it allows you to understand white privilege, not in the sense that no white person struggles. Clearly they do. And social inequality is a scourge that, that affects people across the board of society. But actually, if you understand that because you are of a certain colour, it gives you some level of power and resources over another whom systemically may be considered inferior that's apartheid in, in, in albeit without the legislation Hashi what do you think is, is passive aggressive apartheid present is or is that just an inflammatory statement on on, on my behalf I think I think it's more likely it's closer to the, it, that being quite inflammatory than it is a reality in my in my view simply because I think I think the sort of, you know, bespoke, uh, prefabricated historical comparisons don't aid us in any meaningful way. The experience of being a black person, woman, man, you know, in Britain in 2020 is incomparable to what it means to be a young black male uh, in Minnesota. Now, there are, of course, certain similarities, power structures, you know, the way in which uh, the black man is denigrated due to the historical reasons that might be much closely linked to the history of slavery in, the, in, in America as compared to the empire in the UK. 
but actually these experiences and the way in which we go we kind of reach out for these comparisons i don't think aid us and i've set this out in the book because i i, I sort of say look we have a unique experience for example with the police we have a unique experience of our racism that is specific to english people as compared to the french people and the way they treat black west africans mm-hmm. and so if we are going to make headway in terms of finding solutions it is absolutely critical that we start from a from a position that understands the status quo a little bit better because otherwise what we'll be doing is if we reach for kind of prefabricated uh, uh starting points we're only going to really reach for prefabricated answers and we're going to be head- banging our heads against the wall and so in my view really it, 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 it is not by any means me trying to belittle the problems that we have we have sheer deep racist ideas that are still prevalent in british society but we are making huge amounts of progress sometimes better than others mm-hmm. and the idea that we are out of the woods is also you know not true and it's just that that's just my analysis of it and 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 we have to be realistic about what solutions look like and crucially we have to be realistic about the time frame the notion that we mm-hmm. could resolve this within our lifetime is also fanciful it will take time there will be false starts it will not be easy and a lot of compromises will be required and that's just my view of it can i can i can i ask you if you do explore racism in the uk uh, separately from your counterpart part you know a lawyer in the us exploring yeah. racism in the us yeah it's inevitable that you'll come to a place where there's common threads. Yeah. Now, if you yeah. identify those common threads, you see why the Black Lives Matter movement is global as opposed mm-hmm. to tethered and anchored in one territory. Yes. And, and, and so te- te- asking us to understand racism uh, literally at a jurisdictional level belies the reality that its foundations really predate some of these nation states. And, and so you have to consider the threads that cover all, because actually usually those are where the entrenched, rooted foundations of the issue lie. No, I completely, I completely agree with you that the common threads are there. What I'm saying is, if we're interested in the solutions, I'm arguing that those common threads are helpful to us but actually if we are looking for long lasting fundamental transformation those common threads that are common to south africa or that might be common to new york or or toronto as in london and paris they're not really going to be useful to us when we start thinking about the long term solutions that's just my view i mean i might be wrong but that oh, that, oh. That, that there is a limitation as to what we can fundamentally do with those common threads when we start grappling with the answers if we look at this from an organizational perspective what is it that is going to drive change what is it that's going to make those statistics change genuinely and start to make the kind of difference that that boko described ama um you know i think it's interesting that you are bringing it back to the workplace I sometimes feel like the workplace there is more to it than just in the workplace. And just listening to both Boku and Hashi on on just the parameters around 
you know, yes, our experiences in the UK is very different from our experiences, the experiences in Canada or whatever. But I think what you also have to be very, um, you have to think about is the fact that our experiences here will be very different. Not all the black lives are the same. Or our experiences are the same. But what brings us in unity is are those common threads. And actually, I would even challenge Ishisa a little bit more to the fact of the, of the matter that, that this the reason why this is so global, this movement has become so global, is because of the common threads that bind us. You know, I have family in America. I might not be an American citizen, but I have family in America. So I see, I hear, and I feel their journeys that they go through. And when I am there in America, I'm ultimately treated similar to what they go through. So I think there is definitely a woven thread that needs to be considered when we're looking at how that impacts the um the movement of just even black people in other other countries but for now if we're focusing on the uk and if we're focusing in in um in the sense of the workplace there are definitely things where we have to look at the employee life cycle and think about where is the level playing grounds not being equal and i think there's definitely things that need to be done not just from recruitment level but also very much when you are integrated when you're inducted into a workplace the key thing for me is around the cultures you're building so what kind of culture are you creating in your workplace and you really need to think about it when you're looking at your policies when you're looking at just even the systems you're introducing in your organizations and actually how fair are they are you actually looking at for example the language that you use the behavior that is acceptable and unacceptable in your workplaces are you truly holding accountable the decision makers so for example yes we have the c-suite but i'm talking about on all levels i'm talking about line managers i'm talking about individuals what is it what are we creating in the workplaces that we really need to look at. What are the microaggressions that are happening in the workplace where statements are being said um, so flippantly, but nobody's been held accountable about, uh, on them? What are, you know, when we're looking at promotion pools and, and pipelines, are we realistically looking at them thinking, okay, well, actually, why do we not have a single person of color on these lists when we actually have great talent in the workplace? You know, I think when you're looking at it from the perspective of learning and development, what education what training what are you providing again from a cultural awareness and cultural intelligence lens that is playing a part in how your culture is being raised how true are you holding your the values and the mission of your so-called organization to the people that actually you are hiring and actually expecting to be um part of your workforce and pipeline so i think i mean it's very very kind of surface high level i'm talking about here but if you die for me it's dissecting every single corner of the employee experience and actually really truly looking at it from an inclusive lens and saying what is it that we need to do better i'm worried that organizations focus on punishment rather than creating positive cultures because people think i'm going to get told off and reprimanded if i make a joke rather than focusing on why shouldn't i make that joke why shouldn't i make that comment why is it hurtful to the person on the receiving end of the joke and and for me the way forward around a lot of this starts with basic culture change and basic openness and understanding of other people just on that point though um and i agree with amar on this but one person's banter one person's joke is quite frankly a power structure that is an oppressive tool towards another person and that's what people don't understand when they start talking about the kind of banter in the workplace 
it's easy for you to make these kind of jokes. But actually, somebody who is, might be the first generation in, that, in, in their family to find themselves in a professional context that a, you know, a big accountancy law firm or something, you speaking to them in that way actually may be quite comical, but actually to them, it goes straight to the dignity of who they are. And that's what a lot of people don't understand when you try and deal with that and they always are, oh, it's just political correctness gone wrong. But I guess that's part of the education that we need that you, you're referring to, Tom. I absolutely want us to teach civics. I want us to teach how to be a good human being. I want us to teach a curiosity of other human beings. Uh, it's too trite to say, to walk in the shoes of other people. But, you know, I don't have kids. Uh, but I, I would like to see my godchildren and my nieces and nephew taught about understanding other cultures and other people. And uh, because by the time you get people into the workplace it's frankly too late or it takes much more effort it's a really interesting discussion around you know a, a joke to one is a is pain to another um I, I, I do think we need to be curious about our differences mm -hmm. we do need to show interest in learning about one another and and there's appropriate ways of doing that because i think it is dangerous if we deny each other's differences because then we don't really empathize with one another i think crucially in organizations leadership um its style and it acknowledging its responsibilities to create a culture that ensures the blight of racism and or racial bias um, doesn't spill out into action uh, is key but there's lots of things organizations can do and it's been written about for decades around um, uh, policies and procedures and how they need to shift as society itself shifts. Um, and, and that comes to recruitment, how people are, uh, are progressed through an organisation. It, it, it comes to organisational image. I'm a marketeer. Um, and you often see marketing campaigns that are global from brands that are used by everybody that don't reflect uh, representation uh, of colour within uh, the societies in which they're marketing their their wares and and I guess uh, values all corporations or many will invest heavy amounts of money in framing the, their corporate values but they're not living them out and I think if you live out your values it's more convincing and it ensures that rhetoric uh, it, it doesn't restrict your potential for growth. Okay. As a white person, I want to make a difference and I'm listening to what you say and I'm taking it on board in order to make sure I can make a difference. I feel that in order to make progress in Black Lives Matter, as it plays out inside organizations, a starting point is to have a positive and respectful and open-minded organizational culture for everybody from which you build so that you can go into a deeper dive around what life is like for different types of people as Amma described but I I'm feeling the way forward is a respectful culture for everybody do you see that as a fair point do you see that as enough of a starting point 
I mean, I, I hear you, Tom, and I hear you from the humanity aspect of that. But if we actually look about what's in the workplace in terms of, if we're splitting it to um, diversity data demographics, the majority yeah. is the white, you know, the white demographic. So I get what you're saying about it has to be equal for all, but it's very hard to do when the majority of all is still very much hugely predominantly white. Um, but also but, uh, I think... Know. But also I think, and I've been having these conversations actually internally, but also I think there's nothing wrong necessarily with starting with. So Black Lives Matter has suddenly made us think, oh my God, in the workplace, which has been going on forever, but in the workplace, we need to be, we need to look at our, you know, the systemic racism internally and how do we change that, etc. If you approach that and if you're looking at race as one of the key factors of the priorities now, there is nothing stopping you from looking at race from an intersectionality lens. What really annoys me is when people look at diversity and inclusion according to the strands and you stick to the strands. We are not just one strand. Modular, sectional. So we're, exactly. You know, you dissect, you intersect. There's so much more to us as individuals and as human beings. But I think it's so, it can, if we go too broad, we dilute and we can't solve for everything. But if we start at a place or a, a more manageable smaller place we can then build from that so you know when i've been having our uh, racial discussions in the workplace i'm fully aware of having it from an intersectionality lens because that's how we also grow that's how we learn and that's how we understand how we then bring um, other people on the journey and how we then think about being you know growing that um i think the premises should be yes it's a culture for everybody to feel that everybody has a sense of belonging and feel that that there is that respect um as from a human you know humanitarian point and understanding but we are complex human beings human beings are complex or like the complexity i, I absolutely agree and i and i i would love to get to a point where leadership is so adaptive and boko mentioned uh, exemplary exemplary leadership i'd like leaders get to a point where they're able to look at the individual and pause uh, any preconceptions and unconscious bias and say okay let me, let me talk to the individual let me understand the individual because as a as a gay man with mental health issues who has been severely discriminated on both of those fronts and probably will be again in the future that makes me feel that i have some permission to talk to you guys today around black lives matters because i have been on the receiving end mm -hmm. your comments around intersectionality uh, is really valuable hashi what does intersectionality mean for you i mean the the danger with saying that you know we have a situation where the black lives matter movement and and you it resonates with you in the way that you've described and all the rest of it but the danger is that some people might just turn around and say to you that's just you saying in 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 not so many terms that all lives matter and that's the danger with broadening it out and as Amma's words in terms of it potentially diluting things you kind of take away the focus from what is right now an important issue right. which is specifically and kind of forensically about black uh, lives now on the question of intersectionality is quite important and again I, I discuss this in great detail in the book because if for example my book is about social mobility right what does it take for you to do better than those who came before you mm -hmm. if we look at that issue the way i i i have tackled it i said look we need to be serious about the education system 
and here are the ways in which it's failing people. Now, that doesn't necessarily follow that the, the way I've described it and the way that I've talked about it is only specific to black people or white working class people or Bangladeshi women in the Northeast. But the common threads are there, but equally we have to sometimes zoom out and not necessarily just focus on uh, uh, the BAME, for example, label in education area, specifically says, well, BAME people are not as performing as well as the white British majority. Well, actually that's not true because Indian children and Chinese children are doing incredibly well. When you look at black, Afri black kids, black boys in particular, black African boys are doing a little bit better than the black Caribbean boys. And so there's an example where there is clear commonality in the way in which the education system fails people of minority backgrounds, but actually it doesn't fail people from minority backgrounds in the same way. Mm. And that's where I think you have to be careful about the limitations of intersectionality, but equally the commonalities of fighting for the education system because of social justice for the majority and just being aware of those nuances will allow you to be able to put forward proper, long-lasting, comprehensive reform. To your question, Tom, around base level, base levels of humanity, I answer it from my lived experience. I'm brown, I'm half English, half Kenyan. I like to say I'm all of both. <laughs> uh, but the reality is, in a Kenyan context, there's been pejorative terms aimed at me because I'm lighter skinned than most Kenyans. And on arrival in the UK to study, um, I was immediately confronted with uh, racist language aimed towards me because of the colour of my skin, albeit me being seen as black. Um, and so uh, from my own lived experience, you see the prejudice is something that permeate, permeates all societies and we're all capable of it. And so, yes, there is overlapping commonalities within systems that discriminate and they all need to be purged. But yes, you do have to. And in this moment in time, our focus is on black lives mattering. I think a focus on one allows you to understand all. In many ways, in respect to the Me Too movement, you saw an understanding of if you like, patriarchal societies and the, 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 the burden it puts on women allows you to understand discrimination aimed at others. And I think if we all educate ourselves around how prejudice causes pain, I think you'll see society in the lifetime of my children lift and enhance. That was lovely. That was really lovely. As we look to the future, what are your hopes? How if we come back together in five years' time, what do you want to, to have changed? Uh, the thought that came to my mind, Tom, was I'd like us to be seen to be celebrating difference, to understanding difference. And, and if uh, John Newton, the former slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace, was able to pen that hymn and say, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I think society can understand, have empathy and eventually see. And in this moment, this season, as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement, many more are seeing. And if they see, they'll understand and you'll see society 
if you like, improve and better itself for the benefit of everybody. And that will happen because everybody wants a society that is more fair, that is more equal. I think for me, I definitely want, don't want to be having the same conversations we're having now in five years' time. Um, I think for me, it moves beyond the seeing to actually more empathy and empathy, not sympathy. The key thing is around that empathy piece. I would like and I would hope that we are celebrating milestones, um, big and small, where we look back now and say, look, we were just having these conversations, but isn't it amazing how how much more further we have come and we've seen some real tangible results and changes in, in the conversation and not just the conversation, but also in, in what we see reflected in society. So yeah, I echo definitely what Boku has said. And I think for me, it's very much more about, about the empathy, about the change and about the milestones of celebration. So yeah. I I'm, I'm very much uh, would associate myself with both what Tama and uh, Boko said. I think for me, I would also piggyback on, on the point about in five years' time, I really hope we're not having the same conversations. And that in five years' time, we are dealing with problems and issues that we are unable to foresee right now. And so in that sense, for me, you know, it's not as, as a case of thinking that we're going to live in some sort of utopia in five years' time where all the problems we have have been solved, because I, I think that's just fanciful. But I really do hope not only do, that we're not having the same conversations, but that we're grappling with different problems uh, that we could not have foreseen, because that then suggests that we've moved on significantly. Boko, Ama, Hashi, thank you so much for helping myself and others understand much more through such thought-provoking, open, honest discussion. So, permit me to share a few observations and reflections on the conversation we had. How many organisations right now are knee-jerking and expecting their DNI teams to come up with some kind of miracle patch to fix this? They need to invest in serious, authentic change once and for all, which means looking at the culture and leadership behaviours. And yes, Boko is absolutely right. If we make a difference for black people, we will make a wider difference for others. But so stark is the challenge for black people, it is right that we give them our focus. I went into this thinking I was an empathetic ally with valuable perspective. In speaking to my three guests before and during this podcast, I realised I was deluding myself to a certain extent. I still have so much to learn, and that became abundantly clear to me. If we do one thing as white people, it is to learn and learn deeply and fast. Because as white people, we cannot be lazy. When you listen to Hashi talking about the different educational needs between black African boys and black Caribbean boys, the BAME label suddenly becomes too one-size-fits-all in order to make a credible and respectful difference. We must be curious and we must ask questions. So, I am going to take responsibility for my white privilege and my ongoing education. Finally, I really believe business needs to think about its relationship with society beyond painting schools on a team away day. Because as Amma says, 
problem we face is part of an ecosystem. So if you want to drastically change the Bain population at all levels inside your organization in an authentic way, you need to have a relationship with the education system because you need to understand what's going on at that level. I'm Tom Crawford. Please follow at Hysterionics on Twitter and Clancy and I will be back in a couple of weeks. Many thanks and stay safe.